Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, whether you are on our live stream at faithonhill.com, you're listening to the audio podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you're on our Facebook page, we want to say hello, welcome, we are glad that you are here. Somebody asked me recently, hey, Adam, uh, who watches the online service? I said, it's kind of a mixed bag. We have people who watch who uh, aren't able to make it on Sunday mornings. They're, they're sick, they're out of town, they're working, whatever it is. And then we have people who watch. We're just kind of checking things out. And every person who has started coming to Faith on Hill in the last year or so, they've, they've all said, yeah, we watched online for a while before we started coming in person. And then there's people who just aren't able to come in person uh, for whatever reason. And so... Three different groups of people tend to watch our online content, and specifically Sunday mornings. We also have podcasts on, uh, on all of these platforms, audio and video, the 20-minute Bible study, uh, Starting Points podcasts, and the Talk About Anything podcast. But Sunday mornings, uh, there tends to be three different kinds of people that are engaging. So if you are somebody who's normally in person, but for whatever reason you can't be, we want to say hello. We're glad that you're here. We miss you in person. Uh, if you are unable to be on, you know, in person just in general, we're glad that you're here and we're glad that this can be a service to you and for you. And if you're just checking things out, if you're like, hey, you know what, I've been thinking I need to get back to church or I need to start going to church for the first time or I, I'm new to the area or whatever the thing is, if you have any questions about the church, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. Love to hear from you. Uh, if you are kind of online only, that's okay. We just encourage people to be connected, whether they're in person or online. There's people who could show up every Sunday morning and then not really be connected to the church. They just show up on Sunday mornings. And then there's people who are really more online, but then they, they're part of the online small group or they're, uh, you know, they're doing other things. And so and to me, they're far more connected with the church, even though they're not in person. Uh, so if you have more questions about our small groups, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. We have uh, small groups that meet in houses. We have one that meets here on the Sunday mornings before church. Uh, we have an online-only one. So there's a lot of different options. Uh, now, we are going to continue our study of the book of Job. It's not verse by verse, chapter by chapter like we normally do. We normally just study the Bible uh, and go through it one chapter at a time, right? Job's a big book, and we would never get through it in a timely fashion if we did it that way on a Sunday morning. Eventually, we'll get to it on the 20-minute Bible study podcast. Uh, but for our purposes, we're doing a big overview of 20, you know, 30,000 feet look at the book of Job. And so this morning's sermon assumes that you have familiarity with Job chapter 32 through 37. Now, the great thing is you're online. So if you want to hit pause, then you could pause, you could read those five chapters, hit unpause, and continue with us. If you're just okay with my overview, then let's continue to study the book of Job together. So if this is your first time with us as we are studying through the book of Job, this is what you need to know. Previously on, Job was a man who lived in the land of Uz. And he was a righteous man. He worshiped God. He honored God. He kept God's commands. He did what was right, generally speaking, as best as he was able to. He was also incredibly successful. 
His business was successful. His family was successful. His faith was successful. His social standing was successful. Everything about Job was successful. And Satan said to God, the only reason that Job honors you and worships your name is because you have given him everything and he has had nothing hard in his life. Now, that's not true. Satan's a liar. There are plenty of people who worship God and keep his commands who have been given nothing and have only had pain in their life. And I'm sure that Job had things go wrong in his life. I'm sure that Job had had hard things in his life because all people do. But Satan comes and he makes this claim and God says, all right, okay. You can do whatever you want to Job, but you cannot take his life. And as we've been saying for a couple weeks now, I don't believe that is an insignificant conversation. And I do believe that is something we will come back to at the end of our study of the book of Job. So just put a pin in that conversation. But Satan does do all these things. In one day, all of Job's wealth is taken away as raiders and bandits come and steal all of his livestock. And then his children die tragically in a natural disaster. And then some short time later, Satan attacks Job's health and he's plagued with horrible illness. Painful sores cover his body. He can't do much more. He has no strength than to just sit there and endure the agony. And his wife says, Job, I know that you're trying to like keep your honor and your integrity and just give that all up. You've said you won't deny God, but give that all up. Curse God and just die because God has taken everything from you. He's cursed you and you have not cursed his name. Why don't you just curse his name and die? And he says, I won't do it. He says something that's incredibly important. He says, will I receive the good from God? Even though I didn't deserve it, I didn't deserve any of the good things God gave me. Will I receive the good from him? And then when I get something that I think I don't deserve that's bad, will I say, no, I'm not going to take that from you? And he wouldn't curse God. And he had these three friends, Elphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they heard about Job's trials and tragedy and suffering. And so they came to be with him and they started off really good. And I always think it's important to acknowledge the good things they do so that we're just not like piling onto these guys because it's never that simple. They're not just all good and all bad. They're, they're, they do some things well and they do some things not well. But they get there and they see his pain and his grief and they sit there with him and they weep with him and they listen to him. And they're there with him. And by the way, they're there with him. They stay with him when everyone else abandons him. Job's wife stops talking to him. His friends, other friends stop talking to him. His neighbors stop talking to him. Uh, people that used to have a good relationship with him now openly mock him. He, you know, his cousins, his brothers, whoever's left, they, they just ignore him. It's only these friends that have stuck around. And everybody can say, oh, Job's friends weren't good friends, but you know what? They were there. They weren't doing everything right, and there were places where they were not good friends to Job, but they were there, and I want to give them credit for that. But at the end of chapter 31, where we finished last week, Job was done. It says, the words of Job are ended. He has made his final defense, because his friends had three things going on. His first friend, Elphaz, basically said, Job, you have done something that you shouldn't have done, or you have done something or you've done something you shouldn't have done, or you didn't do something that you should have done. And so basically, in our modern way of saying it, he says, your karma's bad. You've done something, and now the universe is just paying you back for it. 
His friend Bildad comes along and says, God only judges the wicked. So you must have secret hidden sin. Things that we didn't know about, but God knew about, and he is judging you for it. And then Zophar comes along. And Zophar, he just says, yeah, and you're dumb too. And then he kicks him when he's down. Zophar doesn't really have a core belief about why Job is suffering. He just seems to be reveling in the suffering. And as we've talked about, Zophar is kind of like that friend who's not really your friend, but he's in the group of, of friends. And so it's like, well, we're each friends with all the same people, so we get called friends, but we're not friends. And, and Zophar probably resented Job's success, had some bitterness, some, you know, and now it's like Job's down and he could not be more happy about it. Finally, Finally, Job has got something bad going on, and, and Zophar doesn't, seems like he can't be more thrilled about it. And basically, every time Elphaz, Bildad, or Zophar start talking, they just repeat the same three things. Bad karma, hidden sin, or you're just dumb. You're just bad. And they stop talking Two. Chapter 32, verse 1 says, the three men stopped answering Job. So at the end of chapter 31, Job stopped talking to them. The words of Job are done. Chapter 32, verse 1, the three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in their own eyes. So Job has said, I know that I didn't do anything to earn the judgment of God. There's no secret sin. I don't think my karma is bad. I have done right as best I could. And I also know that God doesn't just, you know, bad things don't just happen to bad people because there are wicked people who nothing ever bad seems to happen to them. And there are good people who seem to only have tragedy in your life. So Job refutes them with the word of God, brings truth into their lives, as we talked about last week, and he's done. But from Job's friend's perspective, Job is just being stubborn. He's right in his own eyes. He's like the person who says, well, God told me to do this. Well, how can you tell them no then if God told them to do this, even if what they're saying God told them to do was like totally opposite of what God said to do in the Bible? But, you know, oh, well, Job's just right in his own eyes. I'm done talking to him. And then seemingly out of nowhere comes this guy, Elihu. And Elihu is angry. It says that Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. And he was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job and had yet condemned him. Hmm. So he is an angry guy and he's angry at Job because he's trying to justify himself rather than to honor God. Remember what I said a few minutes ago in Job chapter two, Job's just gone through this major tragedy and he's told, hey, Job, just give up. Curse God and die. And he said, I will not do that. In another part of the book of Job, it says, even though he slays me, yet I will praise him. Job refused. But something changed. And we'll get to what that is in a minute. But something changed. And now Elihu sees that Job is just spending all of his time telling everybody how right he is. And in doing so, telling everyone, implying how God must be wrong to judge him. And Elihu is somebody who fears the Lord, who knows the goodness of God, says, I won't stand for that. It's amazing what I'll stand for, right? It's amazing what I'll stand for. I was in a conversation uh, online recently, somebody I've known for years, 
And they said some pretty like mean things to me online, publicly. And I was just like, whatever, you know. And then they said something about my wife. And I just hit defriend. I'm done with them. You say something about me, well, yeah, whatever. You say something about my wife or my kids, totally different story. And there's something here that's just got Elihu riled up because of what Job is saying about God. And then he's mad at the friends because they failed. And they failed in several ways. He, he says to them, he says to them, you know, hey, you guys, uh, you guys have this responsibility. You have this responsibility as the elders, as the leaders of our, of our community to speak to Job. You should have, if he was guilty of, of hidden sin, you should have found it out, but you didn't. And even when you were shown to be incorrect, you kept piling on, you kept condemning him. So you abused your power. You're like a corrupt justice system where there's no proof, there's no evidence, and it's like you've planted the evidence to get the conviction. You think he did something else, so you don't really care. We'll get him on this thing that he didn't do. And he's angry at these three friends because they had a responsibility to society and their community. He, they, they kept condemning Job. He's angry at them, he implies, because that they, uh, they're hypocrites. You know, he, he basically says, like, you guys, you guys should have uh, done the right things. Uh, you, guys, you guys were out there, and then you just walked away. I'm not going to deal with Job anymore. And, and there's implications in Job's responses to the friends that maybe they might have been guilty of the things that they were accusing Job of, at least some of them, at least so far. And so Elihu gets up and he says, you guys had a responsibility and you broke it. And using that authority that you have, you brought more pain into Job's life. And if he's guilty, he's guilty. But you guys couldn't prove it. And then on top of it, you might have been guilty of the same things. So here is Elihu, and he is angry at Job. He's angry at the three friends. And we as the audience are preconditioned to dislike him. Now, somebody might say, where did he come from? Well, that's a fair point. As readers... We might sit there and go, hey, where, where, where's this guy from? But let's say that this was staged as a play. We talked at the very beginning of our time in the book of Job. Is Job literal history or is it ancient poetry? Either way, I think the book's amazing. The book is fantastic. I tend to think that it is history that is written in a way to tell a story. So I think it's true. And I also think that it's written in a way that is very, like, able to be told as a story to, to a community that, you know, liked a good story. And so uh, that, that's kind of where I'm at on it. But if you think about it in terms of a play, the, the play starts off with this conversation between God and Satan. And then Job and his wife and his friends are talking. But maybe off to the side of the stage is this young man. And the audience doesn't know why he's there but they know he's there. They don't know what he's doing, but they're not surprised when he starts doing something. We as the readers, we are the ones who don't know where this guy is. Oh, he's been there the whole time? 
But if you were watching this visually, then you would know, oh, here's this guy. Now he's going to talk. That's actually one of the things that makes Job hard for us as modern readers is that it's structured in a way that wasn't meant for us. Shocking, I know. Like, we aren't the center of the universe. But he's been sitting there and he's been listening and he's been waiting. And we as the audience are predisposed to defend Job. He is the main character. The book's named after him. He's the protagonist. He's been through all of these things. He's had these friends who have been toxic and horrible to him. So now here comes somebody else calling Job out and we are predisposed to defend him no matter what. And I'm going to be honest. When I first started reading and studying these passages and these chapters, the first several times that I read, and I've read chapters 32 through 37 over and over and over in the last week or so, And the first several times as I read, I saw Elihu as the bad guy. I saw him as just another one of these people piling on. I was like, okay, well, at least Job's friends were his friends, but who's this guy? He just came out of nowhere. Now he's yelling at Job. And and until I realized, until I realized he was not wrong, then I had to really think about that. He was not wrong. From the start of the story until now, Job has done nothing wrong. From the start of the story, we are told that Job is not suffering because he had done something wrong. We're told he is suffering because of the attack of the enemy. His friends accuse him of things done wrong, but they cannot prove it, and Job successfully defends himself. So, We might think, oh, Job has done nothing wrong. But if you go to the next chapter, chapter 33, and look at verse 8, Elihu says, you have said, speaking to Job, you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words. You have said, I am pure. I have done nothing wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. What what Elihu is saying is, Job, I'm not accusing you of something secret that I have no proof of. I'm not accusing you because it makes me feel better to do so, like your friends. What he is saying is, I was here. I heard these words. Nobody refutes him because everybody else heard the same words. You said them publicly. He says, there's a change. In Job chapter 2, referenced this a minute ago, when he is in the worst, the lowest point of his life, he says, I've received all of these good things from God even though I did nothing to deserve them. Why would I accept the bad if I've done nothing to deserve that? He says, I've received the good. Why would I say no to the bad? God's giving to me what he's giving to me. He's in a place of humility. But after attack and accusation and all of these things over and over again from his friends, there's a cycle. Elphaz speak, Job responds. Bildad speak, Job responds. Zophar speak, Job responds. And then it starts again. Elphaz, Bildad, Zophar. It goes three times, the three defenses of Job. Over and over again, and something has changed. He continues, chapter 34, in verse 8, he says, you're keeping company with evildoers. You're associating with the wicked. And you might say, wait a minute. 
That's what the friends were saying that he had, you know, he was off somewhere doing violent things or, you know, secretly working deals with shady businessmen. And he was, you know, inside of his tents, there was idolatry and pagan worship and immorality. I, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about Job's friends. He's talking about Job's friends. He's saying, you have just continued and continued to be around them. You have continued to just you know, surround yourself with evildoers. You're, you're drinking scorn like water. That's how we know he's talking about the friends because who has been heaping scorn on him? His wife who told him to curse God and his friends who have said, you know, it's your fault and, and, and they have brought accusation and accusation and accusation. And Elihu's saying, it's like, Job, you've, you've kind of come to like really enjoy being a martyr. You've, you've seemed to enjoy this being right when you know that you're right. And there's defense mechanisms and walls that have been built up and you've shifted from that place of humility before God to a place of pride. And by implication, you say, I've done nothing wrong. By implication, God did something wrong when he judged me. Now, Job is not fully that way. Remember I said last week, people are complex. Job was very clear. If God will bring a charge against me, if God will tell me what I did wrong, then I'll own it. I'll accept it. I will repent of it. But he says, I haven't done anything wrong. So where's God bringing his charge? And Elihu is right to call Job out. But we're not expecting it. You see, Job's the victim. We love the idea that God uses imperfect people. 10, 15 years ago, the trendy thing for churches to say was, it's church for the rest of us. What that meant is, hey, there's churches over there and they do their churchy things and they love their choirs and their organ music and they're, you know, dressing all stodgy and being all churchy. But, you know, hey, we're going to wear a t-shirt on Sunday morning. Yes, I know I'm wearing a t-shirt, but who cares? You know, hey, we're going to wear cool modern clothes and we're going to have cool modern music and we like a good beer after church or whatever. And that's, that was kind of the idea. You know what? We're real people. We do real things. We go to coffee. We know what's up. Today, the uh, trendy thing to say is it's church for imperfect people. Now, in either of those statements, I am not ripping on any church, especially no local church. In fact, if you were to say, Adam, were you, were you calling out that church? Chances are I'm friends with the pastor or somebody else there. I like the local church. I'm friends, even if I don't agree with everything that every church does or believes, I am friends with the vast majority of the other local pastors, and I've met most of them. I'm not calling anyone out. But I do have a friend, pastors in another part of the country, and that's their big tagline. It's church for perfectly imperfect people. And we like that. Here's why. Perfectly imperfect people. What that says is, God loves you. Perfect. You're conveying value, worth. And that's true. God loves us. He cares about us. He loves us so much that he died to save us. All of that is true. And we like the imperfect people part because then we don't have to have it all figured out. And I can come to church and not feel rejected or like I'm lesser than or second class because I don't have it all figured out. 
you know, there's the church members and they've taken the theology class and they know all of the things to say that they believe, even if they don't believe them, but at least they know how to say those things. There's the people that look right, that act right, that have seen the right movies, that have right, read the right books, they know the right answers, and I'm not that, but I feel safe. So church for imperfect people, great. I can be there. But what happens if somebody that we don't like who is imperfect is brought in by God and even more so is used by God? You see, if I'm there, that's great for me. If my friends or those I care about are there, that's great because I like them. But what if it's somebody that I am inclined not to like? Remember we said a minute ago that we were inclined to not like Elihu just because he's calling out Job, and Job's been the guy that we've been sympathizing with this whole time. Not only that, but there are reasons for Job and his friends to not like Elihu. He's young. Now, in our culture, we tend to value youth over age. But for the majority of human history, and even in cultures in our own day, age is valued over youth. That's still the case in a vast part of human society. You know, it's a very, very Western and even more so American-centric idea to be youth-focused. Most places in the world and most parts of human history valued the elders and the aged and the wise. And when they said the wise, they don't mean the young. Now, I'm in this weird middle ground. I'm not old and I'm not young. No actual young person thinks that I'm young. I'm 40 years old. No actual young person thinks that I'm young. And yet at the same time, I don't know how many meetings I have been in where I've been the youngest guy by like 20, sometimes 30 years, and I get referred to as like the kid by a pastor who's in their like 60s, and you go, yeah, I'm younger than you, but I'm, I'm not a kid. I'm 40 years old. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've got some experience. One time I was talking to a pastor and he was in his 70s and he referred to the young people of his church as the 50-year-olds in the church. Now look, if you're, in, if you're 50, I'm not calling you out or anything like that. What I'm saying is it's all perspective. I know somebody who I will always be younger than. He's 50, I'm 40. When he was 10, I was just born. When he was 15, I was five. When he was 13, I was just learning, you know, three. I was just learning to talk and do all those things, right? I'll always be younger than him. I can't change that, even though in functional terms, right? If, if you are, you know, if you're 41 and you work with somebody who's 53, there's like, what, a 12-year age difference and nobody cares. In the real world terms, you're peers. But for some people with relational connection, they will always be older than me and I will always be younger than them. And there are people that we are prone to dislike. Maybe it's somebody who's older than us, somebody who's younger than us. Maybe it's uh, somebody who's a different gender than us. You know, if a, if, if a woman starts explaining it, I'm going to shut off. Not me personally, but I know dudes who are like that. I also know women who won't listen to other, um, you know, won't listen to men. Or I know women who won't listen to other women. You know, you think that misogyny just goes one way. I know women who are like kind of misogynist towards other women. It's, it's interesting. What are the things that we will shut somebody off? Oh, you're from the other side of 205. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to make assumptions about you. Oh, you're from a different political point of view than I am. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to make assumptions about you. 
and Elihu has things going against him because he is an imperfect person that God is using. He's young in a culture that values age. He talks too much, probably because he's young or just because he's a preacher. I don't know. But he talks way too much. From chapter 32 through chapter 37, he does not shut up. He hasn't yet learned how to be economical and efficient with his words. And you know what? He comes off as arrogant. Maybe he isn't arrogant. Maybe it's just how he comes off. Maybe it's because he's young. Maybe because he can't shut up. But he comes off that way sometimes. And yet, he is speaking for God. We like it when God uses imperfect people like us or our friends or the people we like. But what if it's somebody that we don't like? What if it's somebody we hate that's telling us the truth? What if it's somebody that we are prone to ignore who is being used by God to speak to us? What if? I don't think this is toxic. I think there is a healthy way to do this. I have had people who have just ripped me a new one, and I've been like, just like, whatever, they're dumb. They don't know what they're talking about. And I have found the healthy thing to do is not to just go, oh yeah, you must be right, and have some kind of like weird, dysfunctional, uh, kind of like uh, allowing somebody to abuse or gaslight me. But it is healthy in prayer with God to say, God, I think that person's a clown. I think they're arrogant. I don't think they know what they're talking about. But I need you to show me where they're right. Because maybe, just maybe, they're an Elihu in my life that you are trying to speak through to get to me. Remember I said that something had changed for Job. Something had shifted. And he had been around these friends who had just been heaping scorn and attack and abuse and judgment and condemnation. And you know what people do? They build up defenses. And he had built up a defense and defense and defense and the walls grow higher and thicker and stronger. And in doing so, he also built up walls that kept out people who might not be attacking him, who might be used of God to speak to him. But the defenses are built up so high. He's young. I'm going to ignore him. She's old. I'm going to forget about her. Oh, it's a That's a woman talking. I don't want to listen to that. And you may say, Adam, how can you say that? Again, there are people who think that way. Humility is the ability to learn from anyone. Humility is the ability to say God could speak to me through anyone. It's been a constant theme. We talked a few weeks ago about being theologically humble. Today, it's this idea of what if God wants to speak to me through somebody I hate. Do I have the humility to let God speak? And you know what? God was speaking through him. God was speaking through him. It's interesting to me that in chapter 37, the end of Elihu's message to Job, and I apologize if you're, Watching the video, you're seeing me turn the pages because my pages were sticking together here. But in chapter 37, Elihu says this, listen to the roar of his voice, speaking of God, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the whole earth. And after that comes the sound of his roar and he thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways and he does great things beyond our understanding. 
And you might be like, wait, what storm? What are you talking about? And again, if this was a play, we weren't reading it, we were watching it, we were hearing it. The scene would change, the set would change, and you would hear the sound effects of distant thunder. Maybe the sound effects of distant lightning. Maybe the lighting and the backdrop would change from a clear day to an impending storm. And we're going to find out next week, God is going to speak directly to Job and to his friends. And we're going to find out that God speaks to them in and through the storm. And Elihu is preparing them. Elihu is saying, hey, get ready, Job. The storm's coming. God's going to speak to you through it. He's saying to the three friends, get ready. Because God's going to speak to the friends. He's going to deal with Job's friends. Get ready. He stands up, and maybe, maybe he's wrong to be as angry as he is. Maybe he is too young and inexperienced, and he talks too much, and he's arrogant, all those things. But he stands up, and in the grace of God, is used to prepare Job's heart, his friend's hearts, for what God will do. There, there are different ways that this has happened in my own life. I could just share my own story. Uh, I had somebody speak prophetically in my life when I was 14 years old. And they warned me about suffering that was coming. That was coming and it was going to happen. And six months later, when that suffering season was upon my life, I remembered the words of that person and said, oh Lord, you were speaking prophetically to me, but in my pride, my defenses, I did not want to believe you, but you warned me. Another time, he did not speak through a person. He spoke through his spirit. It's one of the few times in my life where I felt the Lord spoke in, in almost an audible voice. I can't explain it. But as I pulled into the parking lot for a meeting that I had, it was about 15 years ago. As I pulled into the parking lot for the meeting that I was about to have, it was a work meeting. And I remember God speaking to me and said, Adam, you're not going to like anything in this meeting. And you are not to defend yourself because there's truth in what's about to be said. And it was about as painful a moment in my life as I've ever had. And I'm so thankful that God prepared me ahead of time so that I walked in ready to hear from him. Elihu has all kinds of faults, but he's being used by God to prepare Job. And we know that because Elihu wasn't just using pretty words, talking about the Lord's voice being like lightning and thunder in a storm. But when we get to chapter 38, and we read chapter 38 onward next week, we will find out that God does speak through the storm, literally. And Elihu is just preparing the way and helping so that their hearts are ready to hear from God. And I don't know where you're at, but I think it's worth evaluating, is God trying to speak to me, but I don't want to hear it because I don't respect or I even hate the person God's trying to speak to me through? Am, am I at a moment where I responded well to suffering or tragedy that happened in the past, like Job did? But since then, I have built up defenses that prevent people from ministering to me, prevent God from using people in my life for my healing and my victory. 
Am I keeping out the Elihu's because of what the Elphazes and the Bildads and the Zophars have done? All of those things are things that only can be answered by ourselves and with God in prayer. I can't tell you. I'm not God for you. You know, I'm not a priest. That, 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 that whole thing is just man-made inventions. But the Holy Spirit of God is still working and still moving as we go to God in prayer. And that's where I leave you with this encouragement to go to God in prayer. Lord, show me where I've built up defenses that keep others out, keep you from ministering. Show me where you have been trying to speak to me, but I have rejected your messengers because they're imperfect people too, but I don't like them or they're imperfect in a way that's uncomfortable for me or whatever. Lord, do your work in me. And I believe that he is doing work in the lives of people all over, just as he is about to do a work in the life of Job. And next Sunday at 10.30 a.m., we will get back together and see what God has to say to Job, to his friends, and to us. God bless you. See you next Sunday. Hope to see you in the small groups. The love of Jesus be with you. The mercy of God be present in your life. The peace of God full in your hearts. Amen. Amen.